we will get a running head start. So let's just read the first 10 verses of chapter 43, and then we'll work our way through the next couple chapters. We read, now the famine was severe in the land. This is the land of Egypt. We've been looking at Joseph, our central character, an interesting tale, how he is sold by his brothers into slavery. That journey takes him to Egypt, where he's sold again from the Midianites to a man named Potiphar. He rises in Potiphar's house. Some stuff hits the fan. He ends up being falsely accused of rape. That lands him in the king's prison. From the king's prison, he encounters a butler and a baker. The butler and baker of Pharaoh interpret some dreams. The butler gets restored to his position. Joseph's like, yes, he'll remember me. The problem, he forgot for two years and didn't remember until Pharaoh himself had a dream. And the butler's like, oh, yeah, I totally forgot about Joe. He's still been in prison for two years. Long story short, Joseph ascends from the prison to the second most powerful man in the land. And the dream that Pharaoh dreamed was a warning that there would be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of severe famine. So we're told that this famine is severe in the land. And it came to pass that when they had eaten up the grain, which they had brought from Egypt, this is speaking of Joseph's brothers who had come to, to purchase grain, they said to their father, uh, their father said to them, go back and buy us a little food. But Judah spoke to him, saying, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face until your brother is with you. And let me just give you a little backstory to give some context to that. The famine, it's severe. Joseph is in charge of all of the provisions. He's in charge of the grain, the warehouses. God is doing this cool thing through Joseph. He's the savior, but he's got his eye out because this famine just didn't hit Egypt. It hit the whole area, including Canaan. Joseph knows at some point, some point in time, his brothers are going to run out of food, the brothers who sold him out, and they're going to come down and wanting, they're going to want to buy stuff. Sure enough, it happens as Joseph anticipated. Joseph, at this point, it's been 20 years since he's seen his brother, his brothers. He's a totally different looking human being. He sees them. He recognizes them. They don't recognize him. So Joseph begins to kind of enact a plan, a strategy. Ultimately, he keeps one of the brothers back, sends the others to retrieve Benjamin, his youngest brother. And we'll get to why that is in, in, in the case. But, but Judah, Jacob, is like, I'm not going to let Benjamin go with you numbskulls back to Egypt. I guess I've just lost Simeon. I mean, it's, it's just great faith uh, by Jacob. And yet Judah's now, they're out of food, they're out of provisions. He's coming back to dad. He's like, you want us to go? We can't go unless you're willing to send little bro. So Israel said, this is Jacob. Why did you deal so wrongfully with me as to tell the man whether you still had another brother? Why didn't you lie? But they said, the man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family, saying, is your father still alive? Have you another brother? And we told him according to these words, could we have known that he would say, bring your little brother down? Then Judah said to Israel, his father, send Benjamin with me. We will arise, we'll go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and our little ones. I myself will be a surety for Benjamin. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. Judah stepping to the forefront. For if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned the second time. The provisions have expired. Jacob wants the boys to go back to Egypt to purchase more grain. Benjamin has to go. This is the whole argument that Judah is making. If we go without Benjamin, we've been accused of being spies. We've placed our word that we're not. We've got to bring Benjamin as proof. If you don't go, this is a suicide mission. Jacob's concerned for Benjamin, his life. But in the end, according to Judah's argument, it doesn't really matter. Whether you send Benjamin or not, we're going to die here of starvation. Like Jacob comes to the understanding. He really has no other options. If he loses Benjamin, he loses Benjamin. If he doesn't send him, they're all going to die anyway. Verse 11, so we had gotten that far last Sunday. Verse 11, picking up new territory. So their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, this is the way that it is, then this is what you do. 
Take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down a present for the man. Now, they don't know it's Joseph. A little balm and a little honey, spices, myrrh, pistachio nuts, almonds. Take double the money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. You got to go listen to last Sunday's message for that to make sense. Take your brother also. And arise, go back to the man. And may God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may release your other brother, this is Simeon and Benjamin. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. So the men took the present and Benjamin. They took double money in their hand. They arose, they went to Egypt. And they stood before Joseph. And when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Take these men to my home, slaughter an animal, and make ready. For these men will dine with me at noon. So the man did as Joseph ordered, and the man brought these men into Joseph's house. Now imagine the great relief that Joseph experienced when he saw that his brothers had finally returned. We have no idea how long this delay took place. Not only had these brothers come back for Simeon, not leaving him to rot in prison, but it became clear some things have changed. They bring Benjamin, and Benjamin is clearly well. You know, the last time that Joseph had seen Benjamin, Benjamin had been a toddler. He hears from their mouths that Benjamin is fine, but he wants to see it for himself. What follows, the verses that we read, it would have been really odd for these Hebrew men. They approach Joseph. And as they're approaching, Joseph seeing that Benjamin is with them, Joseph turns to the steward of his house, his servant, and he mutters something in Egyptian. Then, as Joseph goes back about his business, the servant tells these men in Hebrew that the master was requesting an audience with them in his home at noon. Now, this whole development, from the point of view of these brothers, is highly suspect. Verse 18, the men, they're afraid. Because they were brought into Joseph's home. And they said to the servant who spoke Hebrew, Is it because of the money which was returned in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may make a case against us and seize us to take us as slaves with our donkeys? They're concerned about the donkeys. When they drew near to the steward of Joseph's home, they talked with him at the door of the house. And said, oh, sir, we came down the first time to buy food. But it happened that when we came to make an encampment on the way back, that we opened our sacks and there each man's money was in the mouth of the sack. Our money in full weight. We've brought it back. It's in our hand. We have brought down other money to buy food. And we don't know who put the money in our sacks. We have no idea how this happened. Willie Shakespeare famously said, suspicion haunts the guilty mind. And we see this here, don't we? There is no questioning the reality that their guilty conscience for what they had done years before to Joseph is still eating at them. We know this because their expectation for every aspect of this story is that things are going to go from bad to worse. They've already concluded God is requiring the blood of Joseph and the entire exchange. They're pessimistic. They think everything is going to go bad. Now note that the steward of Joseph's house is likely the same translator that they've been dealing with the entire time, their entire exchange, right from the beginning. These men are convinced that this Egyptian, this powerful Egyptian man, has invited them into his home for no other reason than he's going to show up, he's going to accuse them of not just being spies, but of stealing grain, taking the money. As such, they believe that the property would be seized. They would likely be enslaved. So, to get ahead of what they believe is coming, in these verses, they're proactive. They're confessing about the money. They're pleading their innocence. I love it, verse 23. But he, the servant, he said to them, Peace be with you. Do not be afraid. Your God 
and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. That's mind-blowing to me. Like, the first word out of this Egyptian's servant's mouth to a group of Hebrew men freaking out is peace, or literally, shalom in Hebrew. These guys are losing it. They're refusing to trust God. They're uncertain about their faith. And what has to happen? An Egyptian servant we know very little about witnesses to them. It's like, aren't you supposed to be the sons of Jacob? Like, aren't you supposed to be men of faith? The Egyptian servant points them to their God. He he says to them, do not be afraid. Why? He reminds them of the nature of the God of their fathers. Now, what makes that to me so amazing and incredible is that the only way this unnamed servant could have known anything about the God of his fathers, these boys' father, the only way this Egyptian servant would have known about Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, all of this, would be for Joseph to have witnessed and shared these things with him. Now that blows my mind because what it implies is that while in Egypt, Joseph did not keep his faith in the real and living God a secret. Now in Egypt, they were very religious people. They had gods for everything. They were polytheists. And yet Joseph came and he declared the real God. And this servant has such faith in the real God that he exhorts these Hebrew men that should have had faith to not freak out. Peace, shalom. So he brought Simeon, verse 23, out to them. The man brought them into Joseph's house. He gave them water. He washed their feet. He gave their donkeys feed, and they made the present ready for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they would eat bread. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present, you know, this present, this thing that that Jacob had put together, which was in their hand, in the house. They bowed down before him to the earth. And he asked them about their well-being, this being Joseph, and said, is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? Clearly, Joseph's concern, seeing that Benjamin is fine, is to make sure his father is still well. So they answered, your servant, our father, is in good health. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads down and prostrated themselves. Then he lifted his eyes and saw Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, Joseph, to Benjamin, God be gracious to you, my son. Now don't forget the entire exchange here is is taking place. It's happening through a translator. Joseph speaking Egyptian, the servant translating into Hebrew. These 11 men still have absolutely no idea as to the true identity of this powerful Egyptian lord sitting right in front of them. Personally, I'm struck by Joseph's first words to his brother Benjamin. His only full-blooded kin. The first words that Joseph has is what? He says, God be gracious to you. It is a book of grace, isn't it? Verse 30, and Joseph's heart yearned for his brothers. So he made haste and sought somewhere to weep. And Joseph went into his chamber and we're told that he wept there. Now, don't detach yourself from the raw emotions of what's happening. And it's easy to do that when you're going through Bible stories. Joseph is a real person. This really happened. There are raw human emotions coursing through Joseph's veins. Things he's experiencing in this moment. It's been 20 years since he's seen his baby brother. And we're told simply that his heart yearned for him. What that means is that Joseph in this moment, he wants to tell Benjamin who he really is. Benjamin doesn't remember Joseph. Faint stories and recollections. He was a little guy. 
And Joseph so desperately wants to reveal who he is, his true identity. He wants to embrace his brother, to catch up. Obviously overwhelmed, Joseph has to excuse himself. We're told he retreats into his chamber and, and he just, he weeps. He weeps. And you have to think, what is he, what is he pondering? All the things that he's dealing with. You know, if, if, if you're like me at this point in the story, there's an obvious question that does surface, right? Like, why in the world? Especially if he's yearning, there's Benjamin. Why is Joseph still concealing his identity from his brothers? Like, of all the times that, that he should reveal himself, this was it. This was a prime moment. Now, the answer, it, it's, it's simple. While Joseph does, with all of his heart, want to reveal himself, Joseph still knows, still wants to know whether or not his brothers are really repentant for what they had done to him. He knows they feel guilty. That much is clear. But Joseph wants to know if conviction has led to a, a tangible change in their behavior. And now that He's gotten Benjamin from Canaan to Egypt. The whole plan comes into view. The final test can commence. Verse 31, so Joseph washed his face. He came out. He restrained himself and said, serve the bread. So they set him a place by himself and them by themselves. And the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because they could not eat food with the Hebrews, for that's an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked in astonishment at one another. Now, if being invited into Joseph's home wasn't odd enough, when his brothers enter the dining room, and find their name tags, you know, where they're supposed to, the seating order already established, that they've done this from the oldest to the youngest. That should have sent like red flares up all over the place. That's bizarre. Understand, seating these men in that particular order by accident. Now, Benjamin would have been obvious. He's the youngest by years. But the other brothers, they're all born in a period of about like seven or eight years. They're all somewhere, you know, 40, 50, 60. They all look like they can, the odds of doing this on accident, like just taking a bunch of name tags, throwing them out, seeing where they go, getting them from oldest to youngest by accident, the odds of that are roughly 40 million to one. As they walk into the room and they see this, it should have been obvious something weird was happening. Well, verse 34, he took servings to them from before him, but Benjamin's serving was five times as much as theirs. So they drank and were merry with him. Once again, the fact that Benjamin's serving here, serving of food, was five times more than all of the others that should have also given rise to serious suspicions that something's cooking here. Like in Egyptian culture, giving someone, bestowing someone a portion five times greater, it indicated, it signified royalty. And here's why Joseph is doing this. Think about it. He's wanting to see how these brothers are going to respond to the youngest receiving obvious favoritism. They didn't like it so much when Joseph was the favorite of his father, right? They sold him into slavery as a result. Now he's propped up Benjamin. Clear favoritism. How will these boys handle it? Now this is a scene. I mean, we're just so, so they drank and were merry with him. So much happening, right? Now, completely oblivious, these men to whose company they were keeping and in whose house they were staying. The food, it's delivered, they eat, and then they drink and make merry. This word drink, in the original language, it literally means they drank well. They had a good old time. And what's also interesting 
is that it's likely not being from Egypt that this group of Hebrew men who were wine snobs, that this is their first experience with beer. Beer introduced in Egypt is likely the drink of choice. And so they drank, drank well, made merry. What a scene, because they have no idea that they're drinking with their, their brother Joseph. Chapter 44, verse 1. So Joseph commanded the steward of his house, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Also put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the youngest, sack of the youngest, with his grain money. So the servant did according to the word that Joseph had spoken, and as soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away, they and their donkeys. Can't leave those donkeys. And when they had gone out of the city, they were not yet afar off. And Joseph said to his steward, get up, follow the men. And when you overtake them, this is what you say to them. Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not the one from which my Lord drinks and with which indeed practices divination. You've done evil in doing this. <laughs> Joseph is going to mess with him. He's, there's a game here. And it's not to just jerk the brothers around. As we're going to see, he wants, he wants to see if they've really changed. And he's going to do this by seeing how they treat Benjamin. So he overtook them. He spoke the same words. He said to them, why does my Lord say these words? Far be it from us, their response that your shirt servants should do such a thing. Look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money which we found in the mouths of our sacks. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die. And we will be my Lord's slaves. Now he said, Now also let it be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave, and you shall be blameless. A little negotiation here. Then each man speedily let down his sack to the ground, and each opened his sack. And so he searched. He began with the oldest, and left off with the youngest. And this cup, we're told, was found in Benjamin's sack. So the other brothers, they tear their clothes. And each man loaded his donkey back up. They returned to the city. So Judah and his brothers come to Joseph's house. He was still there. And they fell before him on the ground. And Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done that you not know that such a man as I practice divination. So Judah says, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? How shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. And here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. They're confronted by Joseph. Judah steps to the forefront. This whole thing. Sends them off, puts their money back in the grains, takes his prize cup. It's a whole kind of long, stupid story of why the cup's significant. Just know it is. They put the cup in Benjamin's sack, send them on their way. Joseph's like, yo, go catch them. This is what you say. Blah, 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 blah. We read through it. They get there. Benjamin has the cup. He hasn't stole it, hasn't done anything wrong, but now they're in trouble. They come back. They're begging. Judah. Judah. I'll, I, he steps to the front. He acts as the speaker for the others. And do you notice something fascinating? Really what, what's omitted? Joseph makes no excuses at all, does he? Like, as a matter of fact, he, he really doesn't even mount a defense. Like, there's humility and contrition in Judah. He just simply says, God has found out the iniquity of your servants. You know, they might have been innocent, his argument is, in this situation, but Judah's acknowledging that they're guilty in others, that they're sinners, that they're not good people. But Joseph said, verse 17, so Judah's argument is, we'll just all be your slaves. But Joseph's is like, well, far be it from me that I should do so, that you all should be slaves. The man in whose hand the cup was found, Benjamin, he shall be my slave. As for the rest of you, go in peace to your father. 
Now, here's the final test that absolutely everything the last several chapters has been leading to. Joseph is doing what here? He is giving these men a perfect out. They can return home with enough grain to survive the famine. They can escape being made slaves in Egypt. All they have to do is make one concession, right? Which would be what? They'd have to leave behind Benjamin to be a slave in Egypt. They had sold Joseph into slavery. Now they have the perfect opportunity to sell out Benjamin and leave him as a slave in Egypt. But Judah came near to him and said, Oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing and do not let your anger burn against your servant for you are even like Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant saying, have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man and a child of his old age who is young. His brother is dead and he alone is left of his mother's children and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father. For if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you'll see my face no more. So it was when we went up to your servant, my father, and we told him the words of my Lord. Our father said, go back and buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go. If our youngest brother is with us, then we'll go. For we may not see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons, speaking of Rachel, and one went out from me. And I said, Surely he is torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. But if you take this one, Benjamin, also from me, and calamity befalls him, you shall bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, if the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the life of the lads, it will happen. When he sees that the lad is not with us, he's going to die. So your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For your servant became surety for the lad, Judas speaking of himself, to my father saying, if I do not bring him back, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go to my father if the lad is not with me, lest perhaps the evil that would come upon my father. Now, keep in mind, it's a powerful scene. It's a powerful speech. This is the first time that Joseph is hearing the complete story. Judah references his father Jacob's belief that what? Yes, Joseph had died. How? He says, surely Joseph has been torn to pieces. This is the first time that Joseph hears the story, that the brothers, instead of owning up, instead of fessing up, instead of saying what really went down, the truth, how he went missing and why, that they had instead spun a tail. They had stumbled across his coat, that robe of many colors that had been torn up, that surely Joseph had been killed by some wild animal. Joseph knows now that for the last 20 years, his father falsely believes that he's dead. And while that stinks, clearly, it's also evident that these brothers had genuinely come to believe their own lie. And in explaining why Jacob had such a love for Benjamin, Judas says that his brother is dead. He's acknowledging he's dead. Now they knew full well that he hadn't died from a, a wild animal, but they didn't believe that he could have survived slavery. And in spite of all of the evidence that this Egyptian man in front of them is actually their brother, the brother in whom they had rejected, they couldn't see it. Because they feared, they believed, they were convinced he had passed away. You know, if there was ever exhibit A, evidence that these brothers had changed, this speech by Judah, I mean, it's exhibit A, it comes to the forefront. 
Not only does Judah reveal here a genuine, a true love for Benjamin's well-being. You catch that, don't you? But you also sense that he's, he's got a concern for his father, a love for his dad. It's undeniable. Judah, desperate. He, he, he presents a, a, an alternative option. He appeals. He says, keep me as a slave instead of Benjamin. How powerful. Judah is willing to become a slave that his brother may go free. What a change in perspective. Well, verse 1 of chapter 45, then Joseph could not restrain himself before the, all those who stood by him. And he cried out, this would have been an Egyptian, make everyone go out of the room from me. So no one stood with him. While Joseph made himself known to his brothers, he wept aloud. The Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh, they heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers in Hebrew, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, please come near me. And they came near and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years, the famine has been in the land. There's still five years, which there will neither be plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth, to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he made me a father to Pharaoh, Lord of all of his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Well, one thing has been evident since his very first interaction with his brothers, one thing clear that emerged from all the, the exchanges. For 20 years, these brothers had lived under the weight of a crime for which they knew they were guilty. That was clear. Though they had never been formally convicted, it was clear conviction had placed them into a prison of their own making. No doubt they were remorseful and they were sorry, but they were miserable. And yet, Joseph. Joseph rightly understood that being guilty or even feeling sorry for one's actions is pointless if it fails to change one's behavior. Because these men are now demonstrating a willingness to lay down their own lives in order to save Benjamin. Joseph knows. He knows that they're more than just remorseful. These men are repentant. As one author wrote, their penitence had been proved to be sincere by their conduct. Now, in the, in the larger picture of Joseph being a type of Jesus, we discover within this exchange, the verses that we read, a very profound truth. Though Joseph's mercy had spared them a swift judgment, the fact that when they came to Egypt the very first time that Joseph was like off with their heads, his mercy had spared them a swift judgment and Joseph's grace had brought them near to himself. Like you see Joseph's mercy sparing judgment, you see his grace, the fact that he took an interest, he brought them near, he provided for them. But Joseph's forgiveness, he could demonstrate mercy, he could demonstrate grace, but to demonstrate forgiveness, it necessitated their genuine repentance. How interesting. The very moment that Joseph saw evidence of a repentant heart, that he not only reveals himself to his brothers, but he forgives them of their trespass. And friend, I hope you know that the exact 
same dynamic exists with Jesus. His mercy has prolonged God's judgment concerning your sin. The truth is, is what does your sin demand? Judgment and wrath today. But you have tomorrow. You've been given time. Jesus has demonstrated mercy. The fact that he doesn't zap us all immediately. But, but in addition to that, it's, it's Jesus' grace that brings us near. And, and ironically, we're often oblivious to that, just like these brothers. Unaware whose grace we're really receiving, where the blessings originate. And yet, for the work of salvation to occur, whereby you're pardoned of sin, offered his forgiveness, and then are set free from the prison that your guilt has made. A repentant heart must exist. It's not enough to feel sorry for your sin. In order for Jesus to reveal himself and for you to truly experience his forgiveness that sets you free, that changes everything, you have to be willing to demonstrate a desire to be changed. The heart of Judah. In 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, Paul wrote that godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Peter, following Pentecost, would preach in Acts 3 verse 19, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Notice what happens. The very instance these men demonstrated repentance. The exact same three things occur with Jesus. If you're a note taker, you can jot them down. Three things. First, Joseph revealed himself. Secondly, he called them near. And finally, he forgave them, setting them free from their guilt and shame. He revealed himself, he called them near, and he forgave. In response to Judah's demonstration of love, love for his father, and a willingness to sacrifice himself for Benjamin's freedom, Joseph loses it. Like we're told, he cannot restrain himself any longer. Joseph has not only heard his brothers express genuine remorse over how they had treated him so many years ago, but he's now seeing the evidence he was looking for, true repentance. Unable to contain his emotions any longer, Joseph clears the room. He begins to weep in front of them. His weeping becomes so boisterous that we're told everyone in the house of Pharaoh could hear Joseph weeping. At some point, I imagine Joseph is able to choke back his tears enough to compose himself, enough to at least utter three words in his native tongue. He turns to them and he says in Hebrew, as he's weeping and crying, and these guys are like, what in the world is going on, man? He says, I am Joseph. Imagine you're one of these brothers. You didn't see that coming. Like, this is a twist that M. Night Shyamalan could only dream of. Oh my goodness, Bruce Willis has been dead all the time. Joseph. Sorry if I just spoiled Sixth Sense. My apologies. Statue of Limitations has passed. Yes, he was dead the whole time. This was shocking. Like this moment. Like the very brother that they had sold into slavery 20 years before, the brother they were convinced was dead was in actuality not just alive and not just well. This brother was a boss, was the Lord of Egypt. Imagine their obvious disbelief, the dismay. Three words, I am Joseph, changes everything. In this moment, their minds are spinning. 
How? Could it really be? Was this some kind of sick joke? As these men stare at the man, they slowly begin to see beyond the Egyptian attire, through the man's weathered face and hardened stature, they see into his eyes. The eyes of their little brother. Oh, those eyes. The last time they had seen those eyes, they had been filled with terror, with horror, with hurt. The last time they had seen those eyes, Joseph was crying as he's being led away by Ishmaelites in chains. (laughs) They look into those eyes. And I'm sure there was a moment where their collective hearts skipped a beat and the blood in their veins cooled. There's a moment. Uh Uh-oh. It is Joseph. Not, Not only had they rejected their Savior, but they had been oblivious to his presence all along. You know, beyond, beyond that, imagine how those three words, I am Joseph, initially brought clarity to everything that had happened over the last few exchanges. Like, the fact that this man is, is Joseph, like, it explained why he had been interested in their father, why he had been obsessive about their youngest brother, It now made sense why they hadn't this money in their sacks, why they had been invited into his home, why he had been able to seat them in this particular order, why it was that Benjamin had received a greater portion. Immediately in this moment, like the the stars are aligning, the dots are being connected, things are now making sense. Joseph had been the Egyptian and had been pulling all of these strings to bring them to this moment. Don't miss this. The evidence that Joseph was alive had been in front of them all along. And yet they were unable to see it. Why? They had a misconception. And the misconception was that they believed Joseph was dead. Not only are these men speechless, this phrase, they were dismayed, literally implies horror. They were horrified, completely and utterly horrified. Their first reaction isn't one of excitement. No way, it's Joseph. We've missed you, man. Where you been? That wasn't the reaction. There is a dread and a fear of what is just about to happen. Like, I'm sure they're paralyzed. And yet... What what does Joseph do immediately following this reveal? Well, none of us would blame Joseph for calling them to account for their crime. Well, maybe at least a stern rebuke would have been understandable. Joseph takes a totally different approach. The same approach of Jesus when we finally come to see him for who he really is. What does he do? He begins with a simple invitation, doesn't he? They're shocked. They're freaking out. And what does Joseph say? His first words. Come near. Come near to me. Like many a sinner coming face to face with Jesus, I'm sure these men were expecting anger, wrath, or some form of vindication. It would have been justifiable, wouldn't it? But instead, Joseph tenderly calls them to himself. Though they had rejected him, he's willing to accept them. How incredible. Look at what Joseph then says to his brothers. Though he doesn't excuse what they did, and he refuses to sweep it under the rug, right? He says, you sold me into Egypt. He pivots, doesn't he? You guys were idiots. You did this to me. I'm not overlooking it. But what does he do? He immediately follows that with be not grieved or angry with yourselves. You know, you could take time, we could take time and examine how it is that Joseph was able to forgive a group of men who had so wronged him. 
But I want to take a different angle to this text that I think is consistent with this larger picture. In the presence of repentant men, like Jesus, Joseph wants to do more than forgive them. Please understand that. What Joseph says, how he behaves, how he interacts, it's not just that Joseph wants to forgive. Joseph wants to free them from the weight of guilt that they had been carrying for so many years. That's his intention. And notice how Joseph does this. He says to them, you sold me into Egypt. But it was God who sent me before you. Yeah, sure, your intentions had been evil, but God used your ill will to accomplish his larger plan. Joseph says, God sent me to preserve life. God sent me to preserve a posterity for you in the earth, to save your lives by a great deliverance. It was not you who sent me here, but God. You see, in God's divine plan and complete providence, their sin led to the rise of an adequate Savior. Like, this is the big picture of the story. This is what Joseph's saying. Your sin created a dynamic where I could save. So don't be angry. God had a plan. Like, I know that this, what I'm about to say, this is a difficult idea to, to wrap your brain around. But the only way to be freed, truly, from your past mistakes, without excusing them, but to be freed from them, not just forgiven, but set free, is to see how they set the stage for a much larger work of God to be accomplished in your life through Jesus. You see, the magnitude and severity of your sin sets the stage for the enormity and power of God's amazing grace. How can it be that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? The way you get to no condemnation, friend, is to see that all the mistakes that you made brought a Savior. You see, Paul, Paul would write in Romans 5.20, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. William M. Taylor, he writes, when a man is truly penitent and seems almost paralyzed by the perception of his guilt, to show him that God has brought good out of his evil will exalt God's grace and wisdom in his eyes and will lead him more implicitly to cling to his Savior. Friend, I don't want to make excuses. There's no way around it. It's a reality. You've sinned against God. <laughs> You're as guilty as charged. And the conviction that you feel deep within your soul, it's warranted. It's true. You've done terrible things. And yet, here's the truth. It's because of your sin that God has sent Jesus to save. While your life may be presently filled with guilt and with shame over your actions, actions that shackle you, guilt that shackles you in a prison that you make for yourself, so many people, what resists them coming to Jesus is the gripping understanding that I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. Zach, you don't know what I've done. It doesn't matter what you've done. What you did set the stage for Jesus to save. That's the truth. Because of your sin, Jesus saves. And you're in this prison of guilt and condemnation but Jesus came into Nazareth and he opened the scroll and he uttered these words. I have come to proclaim liberty to the captive. Like Joseph's handling of his brothers, Jesus' mercy 
has afforded you another day. Jesus' mercy has allowed you to get here today. Understand that. And his grace has brought you near to himself. You don't see it. You're oblivious to it. Maybe it's because of your preconceived notion that he's dead when he's alive. Your life is blessed because of him and he's drawing you near to himself. His mercy lets you come and his grace is what's working right now. That love, that call, his word. But don't be ignorant any longer. See, Jesus has been behind the scenes leading you to this moment. And today, if you'll repent, like if you genuinely desire, I need to change, man. And I can't do it myself. I need to be changed. This is what will happen, I promise. If in your heart and faith, you accept that reality and you say, I'm done doing this my way. I need you. And that moment, like Joseph, Jesus will reveal himself. And don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. It's not wrath and judgment and condemnation. Instead, it'll be an invitation. Come near to me, for I love you and I care about you. And, and, and everything before, I just brought you to today. So don't be angry. I'm not. You see, your great sin, whatever it may be, has created the need for an even greater Savior. Though you may have rejected Jesus, I don't get it, it's a mystery. But Jesus will accept you just as you are. That doesn't mean he wants to leave you that way. But the way that you are, you don't have to ready yourself for Jesus. All you have to do is accept an invitation. Jesus loves you, friend, and he's calling you to himself, not for judgment, but to forgive, to pardon, but more than all, to liberate you, to set you free from the prison that you've erected for yourself. His grace, it's amazing. So Father, Lord, we just want to let that word settle into our hearts.